We're going to look at several different passages tonight. Let's start by looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to look there and we'll look at verse 13. How many got your Bible ready to go? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. All right, now I'm going to give you that paper, that paper you got when you came in, or I hope you got when you came in. There are words on that paper I'm going to give you definitions for. So if you have a pencil or a paper, if you don't have a paper, you won't know what the words are. If you don't have a pencil, you can't write down the definition. So having both would be helpful, yeah. right? So you need a Bible, you need a paper, and you need a pencil. Now, teenagers, if you could learn what I'm going to talk to you about tonight, it'll help you. It will help you. I promise it will because you're facing a bunch of people in the world that don't believe the Bible. All right. Now, look what it says, verse 13. You ready? It says, for this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when you received, when you received, the word received there means to hear. They heard the word of God, which had you heard of us, you received it. By the way, different word. Same English word, different Greek word. Now, the Greek's the original language of the New Testament, right? So this time, the first one means to hear. The second word means to welcome. So they heard the word of God and they welcomed it. I'm in chapter 2, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians. It says that you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works also in you that believe. Effectual there is the idea of something that works continuously. It's presently working right now. Once you really know Christ and you hear the word of God and you receive it, you welcome it into your life, God says, hey, the Bible will work in you right this second and will continue to work in you continuously. What a promise, huh? So tonight we're going to talk about, can we believe the Bible today? An editorial, USA Today, Oliver Thomas, by the way, a retired Baptist minister. A retired Baptist minister. He said, churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything that the Bible teaches. A couple of paragraphs later, he makes fun of Christians and says, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. In an interview with Nicholas Kristof, published in the New York Times on Easter weekend this year, Saren Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary, at one time a Bible-believing seminary, Founded on the infallible word of God made this startling statement. I find the virgin birth to be a bizarre claim. Ask what happens when people die, Jones said, I don't know. There may be something, there may be nothing. My faith isn't tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. God is beyond our knowing. I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent being. 
Mm. Isn't that amazing? Albert Moeller, the president of the Southern Baptist, Southern, Southern Baptist Seminary, offered this insight, he said, in his work called The Briefing. Jones rejects the entire edifice of orthodox biblical Christianity. This is not Christianity. This is a new religion, a new God formed in an image intended not to offend modern secular sensibilities. Indeed, she's denied everything that makes the gospel good news. What we see here is a hope to replace biblical Christianity with a new religion without anybody noticing. Almost to me sounds like Judges 21, 25, where the Bible said, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Another word, chaos. If everybody does what's right in their own eyes, you have a huge mess. A huge mess. Now, we're starting a new series today called Great Questions, Biblical Answers. And tonight... I'm going to try to answer this question. Can we believe the Bible today? Can we believe the Bible today? Was the Bible just made up by a bunch of guys? Or did the Bible come from God? By the way, if it's just made up from a bunch of God's guys, it's no big deal. But if it's from God, then you ought to be submissive and bow to it. And I don't think many people do that, to be quite honest with you. What you believe about the Bible determines your beliefs and your behavior. If you don't believe the Bible, then you make your own beliefs and behave however you like. But if you believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God, then your beliefs and behavior have to reflect what this book says. We're a church that believes the Bible. Amen. We're a church that believes this Bible is the word of God. As Paul writes in this passage, the first church at Thessalonica received the word of God and they began to welcome it into their life and it began to work in their lives in incredible ways. And that's what we should hope happens at our church. Yes or no? Yeah, every time. Have you ever wondered why some Bible-believing Christians declare God as the creator? That all are sinners? That marriage is between one man and one woman? That Jesus is the only way to heaven? That he was crucified, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, is coming again? How do we know that heaven and hell are real? That demons and angels exist? That life begins at conception? Let me help you that big picture. Because the Bible says so. That's why we believe that. Why do we address sanctity of life? Why do we believe that birth isn't when somebody's born, but people are born when conception takes place? Why do we believe things like that? Because the Bible says, Proverbs chapter 31, verse 28, the word is speak for those that can't speak for themselves. The Bible says in Genesis 126 and Psalm 139, the bottom line is all life has dignity. I don't care what you say or what you do. Bottom line is this. You can't take the baby being born from the womb, lay it on a table, and then decide husband and wife whether or not that baby is viable or not. 
That's infant side. And that's where we're at now in America, folks. Come on, that's where we're at. I hope you recognize that. Now, when we talk about the Bible tonight, the Bible is so important. So what are the basics? Let me talk to you practically, okay? When we talk to you about the Bible, uh, um, you know, one of the things I do when I go visit sometimes in a house, I'd love to see if they have books because people my age do. It's not on a tablet. It's actually on a shelf. And one of the great things about it, you can walk in there and look, and you can tell a lot about people by what they read. Did you know that? Most of the time when I was a kid growing up, uh, I had Sports Illustrated, and I enjoyed Sports Illustrated. My mother said it wasn't good after they started putting scantily clad girls on the front of it. It was about sports, and then it became about swimsuit models, and that, that kind of ended Sports Illustrated at my house. But you know, if you walked at my house, you would have said, hey, he's interested in sports. Look, there's a Sports Illustrated. What you read determines kind of what you're into. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Now, when you take the Bible, you know, one of the main, amazing things about the scriptures is, um, well, let's just kind of jump into it. What exactly is the Bible? When I talk about the Bible, if, if you saw a Bible in your house or on your bookshelf, um, what is that all about? Well, look at, your, look at the front of your Bible. Did you notice that your table of contents, did you notice there's two sections in the scriptures? You got an Old Testament and a New Testament. How many of you notice that? How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. How many books are in the New Testament? 27. How many books in the Bible? 66. So you got 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the in the New Testament, 66 books. Now, what do you do if uh, somebody says, well, actually, there's 65 books? Or there's 68 books? You know, there's a big question about that. Why is there only 66 books in the Bible? Well, we'll talk about that. That's a good question, isn't it? Because I think some of us might wonder about that. Uh, when you read the Bible, the Bible... And I don't take this the wrong way. The Bible is a history book. His story. It's his story. You got that? It's the history of what God gave to a nation called Israel. And then the New Testament talks about the church. It talks about what God's doing in the church. So, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you have two sections. They're both called the Bible. And if you read the old section, it points to the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to die on the cross. And if you read the New Testament, it points back to the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come and that he did die on the cross, right? So one looks forward, one looks backwards. And when you read this, this book, one of the questions that you're going to have sooner or later, well, who wrote the Bible? Well, the easy answer to that is God did. God used some human writers, but the real author of the Bible is God. 
God gave those human authors the inspiration to write down exactly what he wanted them to write down and at the same time use their personality to come through so that when you read Matthew, Matthew doesn't sound like Mark and Mark doesn't sound like Luke and Luke doesn't sound like John. If, if you go and study the scriptures, for example, if you go to Matthew, you know Matthew was written by a guy who was a Jew. He was a tax collector. And so to be quite honest with you, he wasn't in good standings because he was cooperating with the Roman government. You had to bid to get that job. And, and so he was kind of an, a social outcast. They saw him as somebody who was cooperating with the Romans, and they hated the Romans. Now, Matthew writes to the Jews, and what he does is he has to show the lineage of Jesus Christ. He writes to Jews, and he basically says, Jesus Christ is that promised king in the Old Testament, and he lays it out that he has a right to the throne. So Matthew comes along and writes his book, and he says, I want to introduce to you Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews. Mark comes along and Mark sees Jesus completely differently. And when you read Mark, you're going to read words like immediately. And the reason you see those kinds of words is because Mark's writing that Jesus is a servant. Servants do things fast. Servants don't sit down. Servants don't take a break. They're here, they're there. They're doing this and this and this and this. And Mark never gives you a breath at all. When you read through his book, Jesus goes here, Jesus goes there, Jesus goes there. And it seems like Jesus is in a hurry the whole time because Jesus is a servant. Matthew writes to who? I just told you that. Matthew writes to who? The Jews. The Jews. He proves to them that Jesus is what? The king of the Jews. Mark, he writes to the Romans. By the way, 60% of the Roman Empire were servants. See the connection? And he talks about Jesus being the son of man, Jesus being the servant. He didn't come to be ministered to, but he came to minister and give his life a ransom for many. Now, you got Luke. Luke comes along. Who's the only Gentile writer in the New Testament? Luke. Are you with me? He writes two books. He's writing to a guy named Theopolis. If you read Luke chapter 1, first four verses, you're going to find that he writes to a guy named Theopolis, and he calls him most excellent Theopolis. Most people think that Theopolis was a, a Roman official, that he was somebody who was an uppity-up in the, in the Roman empire and had some kind of official position. And so Luke writes to him. By the way, Luke's a doctor. Luke's a person that's given to detail. You're, you better hope your doctor is. I want him to pay attention when he checks me out, right? I want him to know what my charts are and recognize that he's paying attention to me, not to 5,000 other patients, just me. <laughs> How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and, and, and Luke writes to this most excellent Theop Theopolis, and he says, hey, I want to tell you the story of this guy named Jesus Christ, of the things he began to do and to preach and to teach. And man, he's an incredible person. And off he goes into that passage. Now, Luke being a doctor writes about Jesus Christ and he writes about Christ. Boy, aren't you hoping those, that air conditioning keeps working? 
Come on, say amen to that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So he's writing and he says, hey, being a doctor, I know what a man is. Jesus is the son of man. He's human. And a doctor would know what a human being was. How many would agree with that? Yeah, so he writes about this guy. Now, when you get to the book of Acts, this guy's going to read the... The book of Acts, by the time he gets to the book of Acts, now he writes to this guy named Theopolis, but he doesn't call him most excellent Theopolis. Now he just calls him O Theopolis. You say, Pastor, what do you think happened? I think he got saved. What do you think happened? He got persecuted. What do you think happened? I think he lost his Roman position because being a Christian back in those days wasn't popular. So now he writes about what Jesus begins to do and teach. And he says, now he says, I'm going to tell you about the book of Acts. This is a history book. And this book is going to tell you what the church did in the first 30 years. It starts off with a guy named Peter, and that's the first 12 verses. And it ends up with a guy named Paul, and that's verse 13 to 28. Wow. Kind of cool, huh? John comes along and John says, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. You say, Pastor, why are you saying all this? Because when you read the different authors, you can tell the difference between Matthew and Mark. You can tell the difference between Mark and Luke. You can tell the difference between Luke and John. John comes along and he kind of goes a different direction than what Luke does. Luke says, hey, I want to tell you who Jesus is. He's the son of man. He's, he's human. John comes along and says, hey, he's divine. He's divine. And let me show you eight miracles that prove it. He's going to go about and do these eight different miracles. And these eight different miracles will show you that when you get plumb down to the plumb down, down chapter 20, verse 31, if you believe what Jesus did and all the things that he did, you'll have to come to the conclusion that he's the son of God and that you need to be saved. And that's the whole purpose of the book. So every writer writes with a different style. You start in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's written by Moses. Yes or no? Yeah. And you go a little bit further and you go down through different books of the Bible and, and, and you come down through there. Most of the prophets were written by whoever the guy was that the name's on it. Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel, right? Uh, Daniel wrote what? Daniel, Amos wrote what? Not Ruth. You with me? Amos wrote Amos. And so when you read all these different people, listen to this. God used 40 different authors from varied backgrounds. Some were fishermen, some were farmers. Hey, Amos was a fig picker. When I first moved here, people used to make fun of me being from California. The land of fruits and nuts. That shows you what you really don't know about California because if you go to California, they make fun of you and you call you a fig picker because that's what a lot of people did out there. We pick figs. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? We're modern day Amoses from Tacoa. But anyways, <laughs> no, no, I'm not from Tacoa. All right, but that's where Amos was from. So uh, different writers over 1,500 years wrote this incredible puzzle that they all put together, that all fits together like a hand in a glove, that's impossible. No, that's called inspiration. You listening to me? 
So when you read the Bible, one of the great things is, who wrote the Bible? Well, 40 dudes, over 1,500 years, from varied backgrounds, but the real author is God. You listening to me? Well, who decided what books would be included? 66, 67, 65, 103? How many books are in the Bible? You know the amazing things about it. How did they know what books that God wrote? People have wondered about this for a long time. You, you remember Thomas Jefferson actually had the Jefferson Bible, and he went through the Bible, and he got a penknife and began to cut out everything that Jesus didn't say. Now, to be quite honest with you, if you want to know what that looks like, if you've got a red-letter edition, <laughs> leave in the red letters and take out everything else. Because he basically came to the conclusion that the Bible really wasn't worth reading unless you read the spots where Jesus said it. By the way, Thomas Jefferson wasn't a Christian. He was a theist. Just thought I'd help you. You say, Pastor, I don't know what a theist is. Google's an amazing thing. Look it up when you get home. Now, when you read the Bible... As I said earlier, God used Moses to write the first five books. Exodus chapter 24, verse 4 said, Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. Moses' writings were preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. So were the books of Joshua and Samuel. We know that by reading the book of Daniel that says Jeremiah's writings were preserved. Ezra had a copy of the law of Moses and the prophets that served God. I'm saying that as time passed, God inspired the writings of every book and it was preserved. It was revered by the people of God as the word of God. Each prophet wrote the books would be called the Old Testament and they began to grow and there was a collection given to the titles called Moses and the Prophets. Sometimes it was referred to as the, the prophets and the writings. Jesus himself referred to the Old Testament just prior to his ascension when he said, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms are fulfilled. I know for a fact that Jesus believed that the prophets of the Old Testament and the Psalms and the law in the Old Testament, Jesus considered them as Scripture. Because that's what he said. You say, well, do you really think the Old Testament was the Word of God? Jesus seemed to think so. That sounds pretty good to me. Amen. Right? Basically, the Old Testament grew. God's story unveiled itself, God's working in and through people, and it was recorded, it was written down from the days of Moses to the founding of the nation of Israel, through the prophets that spoke for God, all the way to a guy named Malachi. Malachi lived 400 B.C. God used him to write the 39th book of the Old Testament called Malachi. Ruth. No, Malachi. <laughs> Malachi wrote Malachi, Right? Come on, smile at me. Did Malachi write Malachi? Yes, he did. Now understand that this widespread acceptance of these books as the word of God in 400 B.C., one of the proofs of this fact is that 36 of the Old Testament books are referred to in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, as you read the New Testament, sometimes I've got a Bible where when you get to Old Testament quotations, the verse either has funny 
markings or it's in all caps because that is quoting an Old Testament passage. Isn't that amazing? Did you know that every tenth recorded saying of Jesus is a direct quote of the Old Testament? Ten verses, one of them is going to quote the Old Testament. Ten verses, one of them is going to quote the Old Testament. Ten verses, one of them is going to quote the Old Testament. Do you think Jesus thought the Old Testament was the word of God? <laughs> Have to. People can't do anything without a meeting, and so scholars got together, and it was called Jamna in, 19, in AD 95. The Old Testament was the agenda. And they got together... And they didn't ratify the Old Testament, but they got together and they agreed that the books that were already widely accepted, that's the word of God. And guess how many books there were? 39. How many books in your Old Testament? 39. By 95 AD, that was pretty much decided. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. Now the Jews had decided it before. They kind of hung in there and that's what they believed. Well, let me see what I want to skip here. Let me, let me give you this. The Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi, and then for 400 years, nothing's written. It's called the 400 silent years. It means that God didn't reveal anything for 400 years. Listen to this. He inspires no writing. It shouldn't have been a surprise because God prophesied that in the book of Amos. Listen to what he wrote in Amos chapter 8. He said, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos says, God's done. God's not going to reveal anything. There's going to be a famine from God's word. Malachi comes along, and when you get to Malachi chapter 3, he says, hey, there's coming a dude. And this guy is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, and the spirit of Elijah will rest on him. And this is the next time God starts to speak. By the way, who was that guy? John the Methodist. No, John the Baptist. <laughs> he says, you know what? Amos says, God's not going to speak. And then Malachi says, now wait a minute. There's coming a guy that the spirit of Elijah will rest upon. He's going to remind you of Elijah. And this dude shows up and he's gone on this incredible camel skin suit. And he's got this loin, this belt around his loins and He's got wild honey smeared in his beard and, and grasshopper legs as a toothpick in his mouth. Yes or no? And everybody says, wow. And this guy begins to preach and immediately he gets this incredible following. People are walking 100 miles to come into the wilderness to hear this guy preach. And he preaches a message of repentance as he says, hey, I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how Jewish you are unless you repent. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist becomes the best-known dude in the whole land. 
And he says, now, wait a minute. Don't get excited. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just the guy that's going to tell you when he's coming. And he'll be here pretty quick. And then one day he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You remember that? Yeah. yeah. Now God begins to speak. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 3 and 4. It says, in these last days God has spoken to us through his Son. 400 silent years are over. When Jesus speaks, the word of God comes right out of his mouth. Yes or no? Yeah. Amos said there's going to be a famine. There's going to be a, a dearth. Malachi said it's going to end when this guy named John the Baptist shows up who has the spirit of Elijah all over him. And when John the Baptist points it out, he says, hey, the Messiah's here. He's standing right there. And John the Baptist says... Great, I'll baptize you. Boom, Jesus gets baptized. Yes or no? And Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he goes about doing all these incredible things you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, hang in there. How are we doing? I'm working hard up here. Now, when you get into the New Testament and you start reading different passages. Let me, let me share with you some of the passages in the New Testament. How did we know that these guys knew that was the Bible? Listen to what the Bible says. Galatians 1 verse 11 says, Paul said the things that he was teaching were things that were not from God, but a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want to be real honest with you. My message isn't my own. What I've got, I, was, I received from Jesus Christ, and I'm giving you what he told me. Now, let me be real honest with you. Jesus hasn't had any meetings with me at all. The best I can do is read you the Bible and tell you what it says. But I didn't have that experience that Paul had, and none of my preaching and none of my teaching is inspired unless... I preach to you God's word and you can see it for yourself. Are you listening to me? I do not put my ability anywhere close to the apostle Paul and say, hey, you better listen to me because what I'm fixing to tell you is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whoa. A, you say, Pastor, why do you make statements like that? Because there's a guy in the Philippines right now that wears a white suit and he tells everyone he is Jesus Christ. He's a nutcase. Mickey, you seen him on TV over there? He's a nutcase. I could, I could keep going. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, I adjure you by the Lord to have the letter read to all the brethren. You say, why would Paul tell him to read his letter? Because Paul knew what he wrote was the word of God. He knew he'd been inspired. He says, don't keep it to yourself. Spread it around to the churches. You just got a copy of God's word. Woo. I've wrote a lot of letters. Listen to me. Ain't none of them on that level. Stay with me. Colossians 4.16 says, when the letter is read, make sure you read it to the church of the Laodiceans. Why would he say that? There was three or four churches in that one same area. The Lucerne Valley had several churches in that. Colossae, Laodiceans. These were towns. 
He said, this is a cyclical letter. Pass it around to the churches. Make sure they all get to read it. You just got the Bible. Isn't that amazing? I could keep going. Well, what about the Apocrypha? Now look up here for a second. Let me teach you stuff without you getting your cockaburs up. Can the pastor just kind of lay it out there and just, don't you get excited? I just proved to you, Amos said, we're going into 400 silent years where there's going to be a famine. Did he say that, yes or no? And then I prove you that Malachi said, you want to know when the famine's going to stop? When the God's voice is going to start speaking again? You're going to start hearing about this guy who the spirit of Elijah rests upon. His name is John the Baptist. Now, you want to take a guess on when the Apocrypha was written? It was written down those, in those 400 silent years when Amos said there wasn't going to be no books written. Are you listening to me? That right there should pretty much prove to you that you can't trust the Apocrypha because Amos said there was going to be a famine. There was going to be a dearth. There wasn't going to be any books written during that time. Well, let me, let me throw a few other things out. I don't believe they're reliable. I don't believe that the early church thought it was reliable. Um, some of the teachings that come from the Apocrypha contradict the teachings of the other books of the Bible. For example, the well-known extra books, the Apocrypha, normally are found in the Catholic Bible, and it was during those 400 years of silence that they wrote things like, there's a place you can go when you die called Purgatory. Did you know you can't prove purgatory in any book of the Bible except for in the Apocrypha? Praying to the saints. Guess where that's found? In the Apocrypha. I have one mediator, the mediator Jesus Christ. Amen. And I approach the throne of grace through Jesus, not through a saint. Are you listening to me? Come on, smile at me. Some of you are going... I think he's lost his mind. So you say, Pastor, do you believe in the Apocrypha? No. I don't have them in my Bible. There came a time when there were those that met together and looked at the Apocrypha and said, no. It's not reliable. I'm still your friend. I'm still your friend. I promise. Amen. I want to make, you, make sure you recognize what, what it is. All right? Now, why should you believe the Bible? I'm going to run through this quick. Number one, it has unparalleled popularity. One of the reasons why I believe the Bible, you know what the best-selling book of all time, bar none, is? It's the Bible. How about the worldwide influence? Did you know entire cultures have been transformed from devil worship, cannibalism, and warfare 
Our own country's heritage and history owes much of its history to the Bible. I've been in places in Thailand, and when I first started going there in Thailand, they worshiped Satan. I came back in three years, and the preacher would say, this whole village now is Christians. We don't have any pagans that live here anymore. I'd say that's pretty cool. Amen. How, about, how about this? Manuscript evidence. Let me, let me talk to you about that. Manuscript ev evidence. One of the great things about the Bible, for example, the Gospel of Mark. There are manuscripts of Mark and there are fragments of Mark. Okay? There are over 30,000 manuscripts for just one Gospel, the Gospel of Mark. 30,000. Now, you, you say, Pastor, what's so important about that? Well, people that can read those ancient texts, they read down through there, and then they can get another manuscript of the same place, and they could read and see how close they are, whether or not they agree. Now, the amazing thing about it is you'll have one that's 800, you'll have one that's 900, you'll have one that's 700, you'll have all the way up to 1,300, 1,400, and they start going back through these manuscripts and they begin to check the accuracy. And it's amazing the accuracy between the texts that were in 1,700, 1,600, 1,500, 800, 700, and they freak out. And by the way, because they've got 30,000 fragments or manuscripts from one gospel, it's pretty easy to see whether or not they were copying correctly. That's right. Are you listening to me? Amen. You take the greatest works of antiquity. That's a big fancy word that says really old stuff. Like the Odyssey by Homer. There are five, five manuscripts. Five. Great thing about the Bible. Hey, fellas, do you got a, you got a deal? Do you got any pictures in there? All right. Uh, do you got any Coumarin pictures? Do you see those? Okay. That's called Coumarin. Uh, that's the place where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. One day this kid's out and he's playing around. He's got his sheep running here, there, and the other. And the sheep run into these caves. There's caves all over that area. And so he takes a rock and he throws a rock trying to get the sheep to come out. And he said, that didn't sound right. That sounded like I hit a vase or something. And he goes back into that cave and there is a jar. And these scrolls are containing the book of Leviticus and Isaiah and several other books in the Old Testament. And they start checking these scrolls out and they go back to like 100 AD. By the way, that was a quantum leap. The oldest were about 600. Now they've jumped 500 years. Now they can compare these scrolls. And the amazing thing about these scrolls, because it was put away in that jar and preserved in no humidity, in 100 degree heat, they didn't disintegrate. They start unrolling this thing. By the way, you can go see all this stuff. You can go to the, the shrine of the book and you can see all of this in Jerusalem. It's incredible. But the amazing thing about it was they began to prove even more 
effectively that manuscript evidence said, hey, we have God's word. Come on, smile at me. Are you getting that? That's a huge deal. Manuscript evidence. How about unique awe? Answering the question, how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? The Westminster Shorter Catechism declares by the majesty, purity, by the consent of the parts, by the scope of the whole, which we give glory to God. How about the unity of message? How do you take 40 different dudes from varied background over 1,500 years and not have a book that's completely filled with one contradiction after another? The only way you can explain that is God. Let me give you another one. How about fulfilled prophecy? You know, there's several things you can look at. Did you know you can look in the Old Testament about historical predictions? When you, when you read the scriptures and you come across uh, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 26. In Ezekiel 26, the prophet makes a prediction about a town called Tyre. T-Y-R-E. Not T-I-R-E, but T-Y-R-E. Tyre is on the coast that goes up above Israel in modern-day Lebanon. It's set out on a rock. And basically on that rock, they were impregnable because they had a big navy and you couldn't get out there to them because they were too far out. And Tyre pretty much ruled the seas. And Ezekiel comes along and Ezekiel says, hey, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. They're going to fall. And about 400 years later, guess what? There's this dude named Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great gets his soldiers down there and he says, we're going to take Tyre. He said, nobody can take Tyre. They're out there on a rock. Nobody can get to them. He said, if we throw enough rocks in the sea, we can. So he got his army out there and they start picking up rocks, throwing them in the sea, picking up rocks, throwing them in the sea, picking up rocks, until they built a road all the way out. And when they got to the walls, they built one of those contraptions where it was on wheels and it was like an inside elevator. And they took that thing and when it got high enough and they got it built up to where they wanted it to be, when they dropped the thing down over the top of the wall, all of his soldiers went in. And guess what? Tyre fell. You say, Pastor, how did that Ezekiel know that? God told him. Come on, does that not do anything for you? If you go in there and you read the scriptures and you, you get in Isaiah 44, 28, historical fulfillment of great prophecies, he talks about a guy named Cyrus. And 400 years before Cyrus is ever born, the prophet says there's this guy going to come and his name is Cyrus. And he's going to do this, this, and this. Just like he said. You say, that's a coincidence. Well, you make a prediction and give the guy a name and, and 400 years before, we'll see whether or not yours come true. I don't think it's going to happen. How about messianic prophecies? How much do you think it's worth if you could say, hey, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2. Come on, you, you think that's pretty cool? Hundreds of years before, hey, Messiah's coming. I can tell you what city he's going to be born in. That's huge. It's 
huge. Fulfilled prophecy. How about archaeological confirmations? One of the things, I, I, you know, every once in a while, these guys, these eggheads that don't believe the Bible, this guy comes along and he says, there was no such thing as Pontius Pilate. That's a, a figment of the Christian's imagination. There's no guy that we can find whose name was Pontius Pilate. Till about 20 years ago and they dug around the dirt and they come up with a ring. They pulled the ring out and guess whose name was on there? And they said, oh, stink. Maybe there was a Pontius Pilate. Isn't that amazing? I'm not worried about those guys with the shovels digging in Israel. Man, I think we ought to pay them because everything they uncover says the Bible's true. Well, scientific accuracy. And this is the one that most skeptics say, oh, baloney, the Bible isn't a science book. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says in Leviticus, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, that the earth is a sphere. Man, we had to wait to 1492 to find out that Columbus wasn't an idiot. <laughs> yes or no? It'd be a shame if somebody would have read their Bible. I saw Brother Craig yesterday, went by his house, and, and I, I, I remarked, I said, isn't it amazing? A couple days ago, he got a couple of uh, liters of, of blood. They, they gave him two transfusions. And he says, man, I'm feeling so much better. And I said, Leviticus 17, 11 says, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he told me about a lady across the street that had a baby and she died because she was a Jehovah Witness and she didn't believe in blood transfusions. And when she gave blood, she lost so much, so much, gave birth, she lost so much blood that she died. What a dummy. Give me blood in both arms. We have a first president of the United States, George Washington. You say, Pastor, what did he die of? They sucked him dry with leeches. It'd be a shame to read the Bible. The life of the flesh is in the blood. You say, boy, you sure get excited about stupid things, Pastor. How about the power to change lives? The Bible has unique power to change lives because it's alive and it's active. It bears witness of Christ. Well, what's the purpose of the Bible? The purpose of the Bible is to stop right now. Come back next week. Hey, it's 7.03. Is, is my wife in here? She's in the nursery. 7.03, it's time to quit. I got to ride home with the woman in the car. We're going to make sure it's a pleasant ride home. Because tomorrow is my day off. <laughs> Bring your paper back. Next week we'll get to it some more, okay?